Hey everyone, Sam here. Before we fly into this week's episode, I just want to make a quick a clarification and a quick apology. This week we speak with scientist and all-around badass Mary Hennen. She's the director of the Chicago Peregrine Program. In my excitement and nervousness, I repeatedly call it the Chicago Peregrine Project in this episode. I was a little starstruck when I got to meet a real live falcon, and I messed up. Very sorry to Mary and to all the other good folks at the Peregrine Program. I can't believe she didn't wing a book at me. Anyways, let's get on on with the show. I need to move her because see how she's sort of... Oh, good Whoa. Got some good good sound bites there. Okay, that sound was... I don't want to go anywhere. Just leave me. Don't touch me. Sam, who is your favorite Marvel superhero? My favorite Marvel superhero. I want to go like deep cut, but I'm going to have to say Spider-Man because I had a big book of Spider-Man like heroes and villains in second grade. And then Spider-Man 2 kicks ass. And I had the GameCube (laughs) game, Spider-Man 2, and played that game so much. Um, But I have a confession. And that confession is that I'm actually very behind on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh. I, you know, I've I'm actually f- very happy about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Break the mold a little bit. <laughs> I know. I don't, you know, at a certain point, it was just like, I can't keep up with nothing. I like yeah. 20 of them. I, you know, you miss a few. And then, you know, I saw them when they were first coming out. And it's like Iron Man and the Avengers and whatever. And then yeah. pretty soon it's like, I think it was around Age of Ultron. I was just like, I can't keep track of all this. And then it's like this huge, yeah. Yeah. Who's got time for that? <laughs> Besides Everybody else in America. <laughs> it's actually funny you asked about Marvel superheroes because we're talking to a woman who helps to manage the peregrine falcon population in Chicago. And when I was a kid, falcons were my favorite animal uh, to the point where I yes, actually I, <laughs> I hand drew a comic strip uh, called Falcon Boy, which was a superhero. It is no longer in existence, but yeah, there were like multiple notebooks what? of Falcon Boy comics. Um, but I did actually for a project in the third grade, I made a book about falcons called Jiven Flying Falcons. And I don't know where that name came from. <laughs> and when I say I made it, I mean my mom definitely helped. Thank you, Mary Ellen. <laughs> How did you even just like know what a peregrine falcon was in third grade? Um, I want to say Animorphs, but probably to... They had like these books on animals that were like in the library. And so they'd always like profile like different types of animals. And for some reason, I was just like, whoa, this thing's awesome. Uh, it can dive at 200 miles an hour. It, you know, looks like a badass. Like, what's more to like? Or what What else do you need? That's that's pretty badass. And a full disclosure to our listeners, we were talking about doing this episode. And I was like, Sam, like, sounds cool. But like, what? <laughs> what community are we what following? What is the here? angle here? Yeah, what what questions are we asking? Are we because I mean, are we doing our first like non-human community? That's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely proposed that. <laughs> um, I did nix that idea, but uh, was pretty excited with the person that we were reaching out to. Uh, Sam, can you elaborate on what Mary Hennon does uh, 
for this community? Yeah, so the Chicago Peregrine Project helps to manage and foster the Peregrine Falcon community in Chicago. Um, so for listeners who don't know, there's actually a handful of Peregrine Falcons that live in the city of Chicago. So Mary works at the Field Museum and has been able to maintain this this community, this group, uh, the Chicago Peregrine Project, to help the birds that live in our city. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea, actually, that they, they existed in Chicago. Is that typical? Do you have any, like, research you want to share with us around? I do. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> yeah, what's up? What, what's this bird? Uh, well, this comes from... Third grade, Sam. 1999. No, so falcons typically live on, like, cliffs. They, they dwell on really high areas, like cliffs or uh, up kind of by waterfalls and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure there's some ornithologists that are like, you're wrong. But no, they live on cliffs. Um, so if you think about the city of Chicago, skyscrapers are just man-made cliffs. So while they maybe originally didn't live on the Great Plains, now that there are all these man-made cliffs, they're able to live. And uh, instead of hunting in canyons, they're able to hunt uh, kind of in the skies, in the, the, the wind canyons, I guess, of Chicago. What? I know. It's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, so peregrine falcons, for those of you who don't know, they are a bird of prey, which means that they eat other animals. So peregrines typically eat birds. So yeah, they have an abundant food source. And and how fast do these birds attack at? Uh, 200 miles an hour. So yeah, they're pretty fast. So we're currently sitting on the 37th floor of an apartment building. Are you saying that if I look out this window long enough, I could see a peregrine falcon falling at 200 miles an hour? Yeah, I would say don't blink because <laughs> you might miss it. No, they're, they're really cool. And uh, what's cool, too, about it is that they were endangered for a very long time. So in the 1960s, with human encroachment and pesticides like DDT, they actually, you know, their habitat was kind of being destroyed. And then also these chemicals were disrupting their reproductive abilities. So I know things like um, like eggshells were becoming like more fragile and stuff like that. And, you know, there was a while where they were pretty endangered and with the help of people like Mary and other sort of bird of prey raptor groups throughout America, they've been able to to really bounce back. So it's been kind of a, a cool success story with humans, you know, initially kind of like pushing this species to the brink of extinction, but then also realizing their error and, and helping to, to kind of nurture this community back to health. Wow. I know. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear more, Dr. Mary. And um, the exciting thing about this episode is that this is the first one that we're actually going on site for. Yes. So Sam and I are going to the Field Museum to meet with Mary at her office and hopefully see some other cool, exciting behind-the-scenes stuff at the Field Museum. All right. Welcome, Mary. So, Mary Hennon, thank you so much for, for being on our, our little show. Thank you for having me. So we obviously want to talk about the birds and the Peregrine Project and all that, but let's start by talking about you. How long have you been in Chicago and how did you get here? <laughs> well, we lived in Chicago until I was three years old, though I was technically born in Oak Lawn, one of the suburbs. And then when we were three, we moved to Oak Lawn. So I grew up on the south side. Our vacations in the summer were to northern Wisconsin, and that's where the interest in wildlife and nature became you know, every summer going up north and that. Museum-wise, it was every Sunday my father loved what he would call serendipity. And that would be, hey, we're going to this museum or we're going to the Arboretum. And so there's pictures of me when I'm four or five in the Field Museum. But I never grew up thinking, hey, I want to work here or 
they would let me in like, okay, you're not smart <laughs> enough to be here. Don't tell them, shh, because I'm in. So, but. Yeah, and a, a quick disclaimer, if you hear any noise or, or some ruffling in the background, can we talk about our friend that is recording with us today? Yeah, who else is on the mic? <laughs> <laughs> I have a permanently disabled live peregrine falcon. And so Molly is here. She's 11 years old. She's an imprint. And that's an animal that thinks food comes from people and people are the mate. And physically, she's fine. If we were to let her go, she'd fly away. But ultimately, she would starve to death. Instead of learning the proper thing of where to hunt and where to hunt it, she learned the wrong thing. Well, she is beautiful. Yeah, she is. I, I'm, I freaked out when I got it. This was uh, one of the best things to ever happen. Molly, gotcha. How did this love of birds kind of come to be? You know, I didn't even all that growing up, it was never birds. It was actually mammals. And going to college, I went to Stevens Point, Wisconsin. It's one of the best schools for natural resources in the middle of the state I love, Wisconsin. My dream job would have been to study social behavior of coyotes. Behavior was always interesting. So you go through college. I, I worked a summer in Yellowstone. I had my John Denver Rocky Mountain moment where it's like, oh, I'm never coming to the city. Never say never. Because you, you graduate, you come home, you find a job, and you start working part-time for an ornithologist in a museum. Luckily for me, it was both at the Chicago Academy of Sciences, where the Peregrine Program was underway, and at the Field Museum here. And you pick up the enthusiasm of, uh, for me, it was Vicki Bauer and Dave Willard. Okay, birds are cool. <laughs> so it came midlife, but now 31 years later, I'm still working with peregrines. I, yeah. Wow. And so then what uh, brought you to the Field Museum from the Chicago Academy of Science? The Chicago Academy of Sciences. Um, well, it's the oldest natural history museum in Chicago, older than the Field Museum. And I was doing essentially what I do here, helping working in the collections. And think of the research collections like a library, but instead of having books, in this case, I'm working in a department that is filled with birds. The Field Museum has over half a million birds, representing 80% of the species you find in the world. And like a librarian, I help process stuff into the collection. I help people use them, whether you're a researcher or an educator or an artist. And then I'm allowed to do the field work type of interest, and that was monitoring the peregrines. So when I started at the Academy, the Peregrine Program was underway. I knew their story and what was going on. We're in 1988 at this point. Okay. So that was great, getting the opportunity to work with the Peregrine Program again in, in their collections. And then still I had my foot in the door here. And I was a volunteer for 12 or 13 years where the opportunity of, of a job in the collections opened up. And it gave me a, a wider avenue of what I could do with research. How did you bring the Peregrine Project to the Field Museum, too? The wonderful thing about the Peregrine Program is it's really a huge volunteer base. You, you see me as the head or, or the person most visible to people. But it's all the people that work in the buildings, that have a view of a nest, or owners of the buildings, or just interested parties across the way and that whole volunteer basis it, it's what you do after work mm -hmm. and so it was free to come with me so for listeners who don't know can you give us a little bit of history about the peregrine project how did it get started and then what's the main focus i love peregrine stories and illustration to the importance of natural history collections. So their story is you have a, a falcon, a cliff-dwelling falcon that's found on every continent except Antarctica. And 
in the 1940s, we started using a, a pesticide called DDT. You spray it on the crops, the bugs die, um, your songbirds eat those little dead bugs, and you work up the food chain. And so you have falcons that are feeding on other birds, eating so much of this. It turns out the body doesn't break that chemical down. And what it does is inhibit calcium production in the females. So with the eggs being so thin from the lack of calcium, it was the weight of the adults trying to hatch them, sitting on them, that were crushing them. So in the 1960s and 70s, you had this bird wiped out in the Midwestern and Eastern part of the U.S. The North American population was down to 11%. It was declining worldwide. Where you still had peregrines nesting, they were failing, again, because of the problem with the tooth-inch shells. But scientists collected those shells. They came to museums, including the Field Museum, looked at our egg collection and said, wait a minute, what is causing it? And it's not what I told you about uh, DDT. So the question got to be, okay, we're going to stop using that product. So we're going to stop using DDT. We're going to give it a level of protection, placing it on endangered species list. But what can we do to help bring it back into areas that have been wiped out? And a fancy word for that is extirpated. Turns out that you can breed these birds in captivity, and they can learn how to fly and hunt on their own without a parent showing them what to do. Uh, falconers had the source of birds that we could breed in captivity. So the idea was, okay, if I can breed them, and then I can um, essentially sort of, the process is called hacking, but you're like letting them go like out of a nest where you're quietly behind the scenes acting as the parents supplying the food without them seeing it. Is the hope is that I'm going to disperse from that hack site and that bird is going to go back to the cliff for somewhere to nest. But surprise, surprise, though not quite a total surprise, they ended up showing in the cities. And if you think about it, the city is nothing but a pseudo cliff. Ample food, no competition for those ledges. You're, you're flushing the, the areas with the, or your wild areas back with these captive bred birds that you've released. And once they start establishing their own nest sites, they become the basis for the wild population that is out there now. Wow. And, and what does the wild population look like? I, I mean, I had no idea that predatory birds were alive and well in, in our city. Uh, <laughs> do you have kind of current numbers on how many of these birds there are? For, for Illinois, you're, you're way past historic records. Because think about it, we're a plain state. So open plains, where's your cliffs? Along the Illinois, Wabash River, the Mississippi River. Um, so there's not a lot of documentation of the numbers we had, but relatively it's low. Now, if you add all the cliffs in the urban environment, we're, we're way up there. And state-wise, because I sort of consider, hey, if the bird's in Illinois, it belongs to me. We have roughly around 30 to 35 territories of, of peregrines. Midwest national population is way off. They were removed from the endangered species list, the federal one, back in the 90s. And that's due to the kind of like resettlement, the hacking of the birds. Well, hacking right? was, hacking's a process that you let them go. But it's the establishment of those released birds creating wild territories and having generation after generation after generation. That's interesting to me because you always hear about human interaction destroying environment, but it sounds like humans almost created new environment for these birds. Certainly, I think the adaptability to that urban environment is what helped with the speed of recovery of the, the peregrines. Because if, you, if you're talking about the 1970s to now, you know, 30, 50 years is nothing 
that's just the blink of an eye. So the fact that they've come so far um, in such great numbers is wonderful to see. Can I just like fire a bunch of questions sure, at you about sure. the cool things about peregrines? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so just to educate our, our listeners about some of the cool facts about peregrines, let's start with how, how big are they? Peregrines are 16 to 20 inches. Neat thing about raptors, the girls are bigger than the boys. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's advantages to the different sizes because if if the birds are incubating eggs and I walk up to it and the male's on, he tends to take off. If the female's on the egg, she stays right there. The male is taking off to let her come in because she's the bigger, you huh. know, scarier type of one. And mm. then uh, how much do they weigh or of the range? You're talking a pound and a half, give or take, again. Small male, less than a big female. Mm -hmm. Are they the only raptor, the only bird of prey in the city? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> you, have, uh, you have another falcon called the kestrel, which is a small relative. You have things in the hawk variety. So you have red-tailed hawks. You'll have uh, Cooper's hawks, which were also gone, have become extremely abundant. You get things that will migrate through, you know, turkey vulture. It was making all the all the news and people excited about the bald eagle that wandered into the south loop, mm -hmm. you know. So there are other raptors in there. Great. And we covered that they can dive at up to 200 miles. Over no. 200 miles an hour. I was about to say that. I'm like, no, that's not right. It has that's to be right. Like <laughs> <laughs> wow. They're aerial hunters, so they do their most of the hunting in flight. And so they'll be soaring up high and they see another bird down. And then they tuck in their wings and, and dive towards it, what's called a stoop. So you've made yourself more aerodynamic, you know, as, as it dives down. And, um, yeah, they can hit them at that speed and generally you get a puff of it. But you'll see also techniques where they slow down by actually going below and coming back up. Fun, fun illustration. Have you guys ever flown in an airplane? Yes. Do you know how, and you know where I'm going with this, how engineers designed jet airplanes and got them to function was following, mimicking the physical structures of a peregrine falcon. Really? If you look at a photo, and now everybody's got to go Google peregrine so you can look <laughs> at a close-up of the nose and that. In the nasal cavity, there's a bone in the middle of it. And think of your jet engine with a little nodule, the cone that comes out. And in your jet engine, you have all those little louvers. Mm -hmm. And that peregrine has one or two structures that are that same sort of thing. And so what happens is if you're diving at those speeds, the air is rushing over that na nasal cavity so fast, it's not, it would not be going in it. So the bird would suffocate. Or in the case of a plane, the engine would die. That cone, the air hits the cone, and it's forced into the nasal cavity. Now, what slows the speed of that air rushing in are all those little louvers, so it makes it easier for the bird to breathe. Well, when back way back when, and engineers are designing jets, it's like, hey, why don't you model something like that? They're aerial predators, so I assume their main prey is other birds. Uh, is there anything else in their diet that they... They will occasionally... Um, scavenge something they will land on the beach they'll take a bath in lake michigan or whatever so if there's a dead fish or something there and they can scavenge something like that how many nest in the city proper well i, I hate to give out exact numbers simply because it's always in fluctuation sure mm. so i'm always going to answer that in a range of and do i like to say chicago land 
Okay. Because if, if we say just Chicago, then we're going to ignore like Evanston. We lose Waukegan and that. So Chicagoland area, you have roughly 15, give or take. And they thrive in this environment? I mean, I suppose you, there's a food source. and Like I said, am, ample prey between your migratory birds that are coming through. The migratory birds, your resident birds are going to feed them all these ledges. A good way to think of what I do or my role in in. Okay, we've got peregrines nest back, nesting in the cities. Now what are you going to do? You don't have to release them anymore. We haven't done that since for, for our state in 1990. It, it's become a role of more monitoring the population, and I'm the liaison, or you could say ambassador, between the bird to the building personnel. You're a building owner, and you want to get the windows washed. You hire the guy, and then this thing flies by. I'm like, okay, this is what it is. This is how we live with it. This is how you can, you know, we'll have to postpone window washing to July. All that sort of things of explaining what's going on with the falcon here. I'm going to do the reverse thing. You think of it's, I'm going to always be what you assume is the positive, how to live with it. But I'm also going to explain to you how to live without it. One of the worst situations for me is if they're on a condo and you have a building that's just level after level after level of balconies. While a peregrine is nesting and on eggs, they're going to sit very tight on those eggs and be very quiet, and you can go about doing whatever you want all over the building. Soon as those eggs hatch, the degree of aggressiveness goes up a thousandfold. So I want to help you get through the season, but I want to help safely for you and for the birds to prevent them from using it. For the next year. So are you finding buildings for these birds to nest in or are you, are people coming to you saying, oh, this bird is nested here? Mostly it's them coming to me. One of the big misconceptions I get a lot is if people simply use the phrase, well, they were put in the city. I, I didn't put them anywhere. <laughs> I can't tell them where to go. You know, you could, you know, provide a wonderful nest box and they go and use the gutter right next to it. So these are wild birds doing what they want. Um, so it wouldn't work really that I put up a neon sign saying nest here, you know, with big giant arrows going you Free know, food. down. Yeah. <laughs> Leave them a little <laughs> quail. Continental breakfast. Yeah, a little quail. So it's more of a reactionary thing. Just out of curiosity, how often does this happen that you get called and it's a building owner who's like, I have this bird and I need help. <laughs> it's it's a very seasonal thing. We're in nesting season now. If you want to go through the time frame um, for Chicago area birds, February and March is courtship. So then usually it's the cause of, hey, I'm seeing it on my building. End of March, beginning of April, they're laying eggs. They will, male and females will incubate and they'll do that for a month. Usually the phone calls really start rolling in is once they hatch, because then you have that aggressive right. and, hey, the engineer who was going out on that roof every day to check the air conditioning unit suddenly, you know, now discovers that, hey, there's a bird nesting right around the backside. Because before it was sitting quiet and tucked down and, and you had no idea. Peregrines will use the same site year after year after year. So one of the nice things about it is we can get that established relationship. So then building managers are aware, you know, if it's a situation where we can keep it, it's not a condo. They're just on a ledge of a building that doesn't get accessed. You know, it doesn't disturb the building personnel. Birds use it fine. Um, that they sort of know what's going on. We get used to, you know, okay, it's nesting season again. How big is the Peregrine Project itself? So you're one person and you said it's a volunteer-based organization. 
It is, but it's a very informal one. It's okay. not like even that you have to sign up or anything. It's all the, you're talking, especially over the years, you know, hundreds of people because, hey, you have a tenant in the building that's watching it and suddenly you get a new tenant that's excited or the old one's gone. There's one or two individuals that help me on my team and then it's just countless people that either email me or call or it's, like I said, the building engineers, um, my favorite people. <laughs> um, building managers, that sort of thing. Do you have a, like meetings with these different volunteers, or is it just very ad hoc and informal? Yes, stop there. I'm very ad hoc and informal. <laughs> okay, it gets to me. You know, you're gonna get an email f- from me. You know, hi Sam. It's it's March. It's that time of year again, and and you start that up, and then back and forth. If a site is accessible, we love to ban the young and the chicks. And you do that when they're about 21 to 24 days old, where they're as physically as they're go- big as they're going to get. So I don't have to worry that the leg's going to grow the band, but they don't have their flight feathers yet. So I don't have to worry about prematurely fledging them out of the nest. Those bands are unique to the individual. So there's one with nine numbers on that you'll never read. And then there's the second one that you can read through a spotting scope and that. With that band, I can look at things like longevity and dispersal. That banding event, you know, and it's all dependent upon really the building management uh, to what they want. You know, Evanston Public Library invites the public. Some of the other buildings, you know, it's more private because you're going in a business or you're going in a personal home or a condo. But that's when you have the opportunity to see the chicks up close and to do a lot nice PR. How do you band a young, wild chick? Like, how do you separate the very aggressive wild mother and do this? Well, if you see us out wearing bike helmets, it's not because if we fall 37 (laughs) stories, it's going to do us any good. You know, a lot of it is the individual techniques are architecturally driven by the building itself. You have some where the building itself protects you that the adults don't have that opportunity to swipe back in. Or we had ones that were nesting outside a window that are literally just had to open the window, slide the window open and reach down and grab them. If it's um, a site where I have to walk out across the roof or you know, out onto a ledge and that, obviously you're using the safety harness and equipment like you would window washers and whatnot would be using. But um, I'll also have people that what I call are my blockers. So they're carrying a whisk broom and you're inverting it upside down. They want to hit the tall thing, which helps that I'm short because there's something, somebody always taller with me. But anyway, so you, you, the broom that bristles become the high point and they can safely hit that and go through it without hurting them and without hurting us. So you're never swanning at the birds or anything like that. You might be moving it to follow their flight patterns, but also to protect me. So it's having those people with me that I can then go out to the nest and grab those chicks. We'll do the banding indoor simply so then we don't have that going on the whole time. And uh, my my high-tech equipment, when I do talks and I show a slide of it. It's a cardboard box that I've subdivided. <laughs> I don't want them all hanging on to each other so they get their own little compartment. While we have them in hand, we try to gather as much information as we can. You know, at one point we were collecting ectoparasites, so the little flies that were living on them, because there was a person interested in that. We draw a little bit of blood so we can look at genetics. We can look at, there was a researcher from New Zealand that was looking at bloodborne parasites that looked at the peregrine blood. If there was any risk that the adults would not take 
the chicks back when you're done, you wouldn't be doing this. The whole purpose of any of this work was to have a self-sustaining breeding population, to have these birds back in the wild. And the fact that they too take them after we've done all this is just wonderful. And once you have those bands on, you know, they, the young move around for the year. You can say, oh, look, our, our bird from Toronto is now living in Chicago. The Chicago bird's now living in, in Wisconsin. Or, oh, look how far the young can migrate down south or go west. We had one show up in, uh, on top of a school in New York City. We had another one who... Yes, everybody knows I'm Cubs fan, and I named one after Ron Santa, who I adored. Uh, Santa went all the way down to Ecuador. If I didn't have that band on it, I wouldn't learn that information so down the line. Is the band itself um, like a it's piece of technology that has a tracking device, or is it just a number that somebody will find it and report it the, back? This stage, it's just numbers on it. You know, um, early on, so if we go back to the 70s and whatnot, radio tracking didn't work in the cities because signals would bounce off of everything. Nowadays, there's technology. And by the way, if anybody has a spare $20,000, please call me. <laughs> um, you have technology that will work off um, cell phone towers. So we could, I'd love to be able to put a couple on a bird and, and see what they do. From photographs alone, we've seen them move, you know, um, one that fledged from our Broadway site one year was then down in Indiana, and then it was down near Morris, Illinois, and then it was back up to Indiana. And I think there's a regional kind of bopping around movement before wherever it goes to winter and then, you know, wherever it hangs out until it has the opportunity to breed. How exciting is the moment when you get a notification that somebody has recorded your bird? Oh, very high. <laughs> very high. And I, you know, people say, oh, well, it's an awful photo. I'm like, send me that because to you it's awful because the bird is blurry, you know. But if that band is perfectly readable, it's like, whoa. And I have wonderful colleagues, Stephanie Ware, Josh Engel, who have phenomenal photographers as well, who will get the bird in flight. And you look at one of her photos and, yep, you can read the band. So I, I imagine one of your main initiatives is to educate people. What is your main kind of method of distributing education and, and kind of letting people who are excited about this keep on learning about what you're doing? Uh, you're right. Education is a, a huge part of what we do. It's most of what we do, whether it's just, again, the building manager on how to live with them, but the information you provide, you know, to going out. Our website is a big one because it will walk you through all those type of topics. Um, let's go through a season. Um, here's how we identify with the bands. Um, here's what to do if you see an injured bird, uh, that sort of thing. Facebook, the Facebook page I run, which is Chicago Peregrine Program, again, gives that connection. And that gives you a global reach where you've only, you know, after six months of having it up, we were followed by people in 50 countries around the world. And then we go, I'll go out and do programs for, a, you know, Girl Scouts or, a, you know, sixth grade class or, you know, they'll come in here. One of the cool things about peregrines, peregrines and Nyanbli are cool in themselves. But you say, okay, they're fine and they're spring, you know, they're back in that. But they become that springboard to conversations about other conservation issues or something like that. You know, oh, I didn't know there was wildlife in the city. What are the other birds? Why is why is keeping Montrose Harbor so important to have that little sanctuary there for all our migrant birds? Oh, peregrines are feeding on, you know, whatever, you know, how do we support their prey base? You start you start thinking of all oh, the kind of wildlife that's in the city and wow. Do you is, is the Chicago Peregrine Project unique? 
uh, or are there other organizations that either do what you do or that you can work with? No, I wouldn't say it's unique. You see it around. There's pretty much each of the Midwest states has a state coordinator. So how does Chicago affect the Peregrine Project? Like, are people receptive or did they, like, how does the city itself kind of affect your little community? Sort of the reverse of that, which popped into my mind, was how do peregrines affect me with the city? I certainly learned to navigate the city. Okay. They don't, you know, we think of all the neighborhoods and the boundaries that you might put up. Those are non-existent to a peregrine. So you'll have them nesting down in Pilsen and up in the Ukrainian village, and you have them, you know, in the downtown loop and that. And to me, it, I, I love the fact that they sort of crush that idea of a boundary, and it's just here is my home all over the place. And like like anything, you have people that are totally fascinated with them and love them who, 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 who contact me saying, please put one, can I have one? Now, if I could do that for people, <laughs> I'd be more than happy to, you know, put them where the people are most excited or the, where it's the safest for the birds. It just, you also have, there's always going to be a certain percentage of that's not my interest, and, and they have that right. That's fine, as long as they're not doing anything to harm them, you know, okay. And like I said, they would earlier, how do I help them to move on to that area where they are safer and more welcome? Yeah, so it sounds like the Field Museum really has allowed you to kind of grow this organization to be something that's really beneficial to the community. Both, both the Chicago Academy of Sciences and now with the Field Museum has been so wonderful and so welcome. And, you know, hopefully we've given them enough wonderful PR back. And then being able to bring somebody like Molly, the live peregrine, in, you know, as soon as you say live bird present, you know, somebody wants to see. What's your favorite part of your work with the Peregrine Project? You know, my favorite thing would be back to when I was the, the kid and had no interest in birds, but behavior is so fascinating for me. So it's it's something as simple as watching the camera or be on the ledge and just look at that individual variation in behavior and what they're doing, whether it's courtship or feeding the young and or, or whatever it would be. That would probably be the, the top. The second favorite thing, and this is a fine line between them, would be to see how excited a young kid gets about peregrines. I love when they come up to me, like you bringing your book and say, and they spout all those, you know, they, you know, they're <laughs> correcting you because they've known, you know, it's just to reach out a kid at this age, you know, to get them interested in science and that, you know, their future's way ahead of them. We're sort of set in what we do by, by now. But so kids to me are, are the place to go. So if people are hearing this and they're thinking, wow, this sounds awesome. How do I get involved? Or if they're hearing this and they're like, what the hell is a peregrine falcon? How do they learn more? And if somebody's interested in helping, how can they help your work? Well, my contact information is all on the website. I go to the Field Museum website, put peregrines in the search box, and you'll get to the pages for the, it's called Illinois Peregrines, Illinois Peregrine Program. There's not one thing to keep in mind when we want people to be involved and excited about. There's not very much hands-on with the birds. So if you think it means I'm going to get there and hold a peregrine, uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> what it is is, you know, you can look at at the bottom of the front page, there's a Google map for Illinois. And the bullets aren't in the exact location because I want to protect the birds and the building people from being disturbed. But you could say, hey, look, I work in the vicinity of this pair or I work, you know, live near there. Maybe I can go on the street and sort of watch them for Mary. If you get a, a photograph, 
you know, you can send that to me. We talked a little bit about how peregrines are kind of a, it's like a story of human encroachment, but then also, you know, conservation, right? With DDT and, and things like that in the 70s. What do, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what do peregrine falcons mean to the city of Chicago? Like the fact that we're there at historic numbers, like what does that bring to the city? I think the answer would be same whether you're talking what does it bring to the city or what does it bring back to the rural area or the cliff sites. You have a reestablishment of a species that was almost wiped out due to man's influence in what we did. So to see that come back is tremendous. You have something that is so high profile and so exciting. It gives us the avenue to start talking and learning about other conservation issues and what's going on. And they feed about on migrants and we have migrants coming through and then we learn about the issues with bird collisions and millions of birds die each year during migration hitting windows. And, you know, how can we start establishing bird friendly building? You know, that sort of thing. They just become that link to the other things. Yeah, you're, you're creating a way to talk about conservation and the environment yeah. in, I feel like, an area where people don't always consider the natural environment of Chicago. It, it could be as simple as they're just cool because they're cool. <laughs> That's you know? true. I mean, they're pretty cool. <laughs> you, get, you can get into all kinds of story type of things. If you think of the environment or habitat and life that's in it as, as a giant airplane, and, and each species, whether it's a plant or a bird, is a nut or a bolt or, or whatever in that. What happens if you start ignoring, oh, well, we lost peregrines, there goes that bolt, and you lose this nut and you lose that thing. Where's the point where it all collapses? And that's so the, for the health of the world, for us. I mean, I'm over-exaggerating it perhaps, but, you know, it's involved with saving an individual species and that. Yeah. The, the the one thing I w would tell kids when you talk to kids is, okay, my life has gone towards one particular species, but, you know, what's your what's your favorite interest? Where is it? Mm -hmm. And making it tangible for kids to be able to, you know, come up with a small idea and then grow upon it and, and kind of right. see where their interest right. keeps evolving because you're giving them something to directly do. Yeah, I think it's, it's cool, too, that people who might not be scientists can be involved and can help, you know, with conservation efforts and with science by, you know, tracking these birds and taking pictures. I think that's a, it's a unique opportunity that people might not know they have. Yeah. So thanks for, for making this accessible huh? for anyone. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing your wonderful book you wrote. <laughs> so enjoyed it. Uh, I need to look at it. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> Mary Hennan, thank you again for a wonderful conversation. Yeah, and and shout out to Molly for uh, we had our, our first non-human. I know. Guest. Yeah, we, we fulfilled your dream, Sam. That's true. Thank you to Molly uh, for being a guest on the show. <laughs> we got some good, you know, shrieks yeah. out of her. So again, sorry, Patrick, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was part of the show. I know it was kind of funny because we were sitting there, and for our listeners, Mary surprised us with a live peregrine falcon, which was the she really surprised Sam. <laughs> I mean, I was surprised, but I don't think it was for me. <laughs> it was. I mean, it was awesome. But so, yeah, there's this live peregrine falcon that is so cool. Uh, and then we sit down and we start interviewing Mary and this bird. It's a living bird. Like it starts like <laughs> flapping its wings and like kind of like, you know, ruffling its feathers. And uh, occasionally she would, you know, she would shriek or, or 
yell at us a little bit, which was awesome. But when it was happening, I was like, oh, Patrick's going to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's cool. Yeah, I was totally okay with it. You're allowed to yell on this show and be rude if you're a Peregrine Falcon. We can make that rule. <laughs> so I want to spend some time debriefing about what we did after the interview because mm-hmm. it was kind of cool. But before we do that, any highlights from the interview itself? Yes. I think what was an interesting perspective was that I thought this was just basically sort of like a restoration or like nurturing these birds back to health and, you know, kind of a conservation effort. But instead, it's very much about helping to facilitate that relationship between human and between bird because they're no longer endangered. They're they're doing fairly well in Chicago, but it can be a nuisance for humans. And when they're a nuisance for humans, then that can hurt the bird population. So hearing her talk about how it's just as much about how to avoid having peregrines on your building as it is about uh, you know, helping them when they are there. So to me, that was really cool. It's not just conservation. It really is kind of educating the community and helping to, you know, make sure everybody's happy, not just the birds and not just the people. That was a really good answer. But yeah, afterwards, I mean, the interview was great. And then afterwards too, she showed us around kind of backstage of the field museum, which was Super cool. Yeah, you can, um, your listeners can see, I've saved it as a story to our Instagram page. So if you go on there, you could see kind of us walking through the museum and some of the crazy stuff we saw there. But Sam, like what was the craziest, most unexpected thing of the field museum tour she gave? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the easy answer is the beetle room. The beetle room. (laughs) Oh my God. So um, the field museum has a lot of skeletons. And in order to extract those skeletons from bodies, they will use beetles to eat the flesh off of uh, these, you know, bodies. And there's yep. just a room with a bunch of tanks of beetles. Yep. Just fish tanks. Like fish tanks of beetles. Decaying animals and beetles. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, it was extremely cool and honestly a little bit shocking. I did not expect the scope to be so big. <laughs> yeah. And so... This was, it turns out, a dumb question, but I asked Mary, like, how do you get the skeletons out of these tanks after they're cleaned? Because there's all these beetles in this tank and it's whatever. It's a fair question. And she goes, oh, just like this. And she, like, walks over to her tank, lifts it up, and sticks her hand in and, like, just pulls up a handful of beetles to, With like, the skeleton, crawl yeah. around. She's like, oh, they're, like, they eat decay, so they're not interested in me. They're scavengers. Yeah, so they're they scavengers. Don't, they, won't, they won't bite or anything. Like, and then she I... just, like, shakes them off back into the tank and, like, closes it and walks out of the room. And like, I'm just like, this is, I'm such done. Such a badass. <laughs> I could not. <laughs> I mean, maybe I could. Um, the other really cool thing is she showed us some of the birds in their collection. So Lee just casually asked, like, what's the biggest bird in your collection? Like... <laughs> And that like was like the five-year-old inside of me. <laughs> I know. And that was such a good question because then she showed us um, like, a, like you know, an, an albatross and a condor and stuff like And it was so cool to see getting a scope, uh, like a sense of scale for how big the Field Museum's collection is, how gargantuan and how much science and history <laughs> is in that museum was a very cool experience. And uh, thank you again to Mary for having us back there. Fully in support. Thank you so much, Mary, for having us. That was exceeded expectations. <laughs> Lee, do you like, uh, are you going to be on the lookout for peregrines now? Oh, I already am. Like, nice. <laughs> walking from the Field Museum, I was just like, I'm going to see one. I'm just bound to see one in the wild now that I know all about it. I know. I, yeah. 
So um, if you are interested in learning more about peregrine falcons, the Field Museum's website, uh, if you just search peregrine project, they have great resources. And what they also have is a map. And on this map, they show you uh, areas in which these birds nest in Chicago. So if you're an eagle-eyed listener uh, that's looking to see some falcons, there's a pretty cool map that you can scope out. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings really help us kind of bump up, and reviews can help people who are interested find something they're looking for. If you have a community you think we should reach out to, please email us at societypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Society or on Twitter at SocietyPod. Thanks for listening. 